Hello and welcome to the Path podcast. My name is Thomas Fillmore Kelly. That is Tom PK for short, slightly easier to remember. I run Blackbrook Partners. We are an executive search firm working globally with financial institutions. Um, but hopefully this will not be a, a bad recruiter experience. It will, it will be a good one. Uh, today I'm joined by Pablo. Uh, Pablo worked at Goldman Sachs for 10 years. He then moved over to Morgan Stanley and has spent the last 14, 15 years working as a portfolio manager and se senior portfolio manager in the world's leading hedge funds. So Pablo, really appreciate you coming on today. Yeah, it'd be great to start by getting a, a quick overview from your side as well. I guess it's been a long way since I started. I'm originally from Argentina, which I tell people is not my fault. Uh, and uh, my career focus has been pretty much emerging markets since I started. Uh, emerging markets today are much different than they used to be 25, 30 years ago, but uh, nonetheless, it's still a super interesting uh, asset class, I would think. And I have had the privilege, as you said, of working uh, some of the best financial institutions in the U.S., and obviously, I learned a lot throughout the years from that. Okay, perfect. Well, it would be great to start there. So I think every person who wants to get into finance sees a Goldman Sachs as probably the number one place that they want to work. So what was your journey like getting into Goldman Sachs initially, right at the very beginning? I started at Goldman almost by chance, to be honest with you, because they were just beginning to do emerging markets. I was doing my MBA at Duke University. And the, uh, the guy that I interviewed from Goldman there uh, happened to be a very good friend of the head of emerging markets at, at Goldman. Um, and at the time, you know, Goldman wouldn't hire many foreigners. Emerging market was a particular case. The market has completely changed since then, obviously. Yeah, I think Goldman is, you know, and I, obviously people are going to complain about this. I still think it's the best investment bank in the world. It's mm -hmm. all about the people and the culture there. It's very super hardworking oriented, very self-absorbing, uh, and is simply the best of the best. I think that obviously the organization has changed a lot over the last 30 years. Uh, there are many more people today than there's ever been in over many countries, you know, hundreds of thousands of employees. When I started, it was much smaller. But I think still they preserve that partnership, super, uh, you know, profit-oriented culture, you know, in the heart of it. They have struggled recently because the world is changing around them, but still is a phenomenal place to work and especially to learn. You learn a lot. The first few years at Goldman are incredibly tough. You work like an animal, but you learn by exposure to many, many, many things. And it's, uh, what you get out of Goldman, you can apply it pretty much everywhere else, which I don't think is the reverse. It's, it's, it's true. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I highly encourage everybody that's starting this career to at least apply to Goldman. If they can get in, fine. If not, not. But uh, mm. uh, gives you an incredible base to start your career. Mm. Then it's you know, up to you to stay or not. It's very difficult. Yeah, it's exactly. really challenging. That was, that was going to be leading on to my next question as well. So especially these days, perhaps more so than back then, people go into, if they can get into Goldman, fantastic. But they go in with the mindset of, I'm going for two years and then I'm going to look elsewhere. I might look at buy side. You obviously have now had a very successful buy side career as well but what motivated you to really stay for 10 years and, and maybe not look elsewhere earlier in your career or maybe make that buy side move later as well it was a combination of things first as you said i wanted to transition my career from the sell side to the buy side uh it just was a personal thing uh, how you feel about my career evolving um number two at the time it was an issue with emerging markets exposure of goldman you know, I can't explain it to you. It would take too long. 
uh, is different now that it used to be. But, you know, let's say that emerging market wasn't a strategic at the time part of Goldman. And it was an opportunity to do a better career within emerging markets somewhere else. Uh, they're much more committed now and they're still bigger than they used to be compared particularly to commercial banks. But, uh, you know, that was the case. There was nothing wrong with the play. And how did you find working in a different bank? Because I think a lot of people think Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, probably maybe quite similar institutions. Or, or did you find yeah. that completely different? The best anecdote I have about that, and I only worked two years at Morgan Stanley before I left. Uh, when I joined, first of all, it was two things. It, it was probably the only financial institution that Goldman people uh, res really respected. Mm. Uh, if you were telling them you know, to go into another bank, they would say, okay. But Morgan Stanley was like, why? You know, they were kind of upset about it. Mm. But the funny part about it was that after a couple of months that I joined, you know, you have the CEO that's this conference calls across the, uh, across the trading floor to explain to people earnings and things like that. And of the 30, 40 minute conversation or a speech he had at the time, um, I think half of it was about Goldman Sachs. Was about beating Goldman and how do we do this with Goldman and how much we much share. They were obsessed with Goldman, so that, that sort of tells you everything that you need to know. I mean, it was the benchmark that everybody was trying to beat, including Morgan Stanley at the time. So just a super competitive environment between the two. You know, I, I wasn't there close long enough to tell you about the different cultures, uh, mm. uh, but you know, uh, the partnership culture I think was something that. Even after the IPO at Goldman, it still remains. Morgan Stanley didn't have that. Hmm. Morgan Stanley was more like a public corporation by then. They were, a, you know, a private uh, company many, many, many years before Goldman. Uh, so that culture was gone. But the culture of hmm. partnership at Goldman I still is something very, very strong. It's sort of a brotherhood. Uh, and everybody aspires to get into it. And it has very high standards. Uh, so if you can get it, it's fantastic. But the, the whole culture moves down throughout the, you know, throughout the organization, and I think that's something very important. And hopefully, it's going to remain. I think it has stayed even, I don't know, it's been ten years more, maybe more than ten years. No, yeah, fifteen years since the IPO, and still, I think the culture exists. So that's super interesting. And then, how was the how was the move to the buy side? How did that? How did that come about? What was your your thought process behind it? Well, was it a um, challenging move to make? No, well, again, one of those things that uh, sometimes luck intervenes, but uh, mm -hmm. one of my clients uh, was Citibank Asset Management. And uh, the group that was running Citibank decided to move and open up shop by themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and they called me and they said, listen, we need somebody to help us do emerging markets, particularly local markets. Would you like to join us? You know, I didn't have to think much about it. I thought my career in the sales side was you know kind of done at the moment at the, at the time mm. and i wanted to do something different and challenging and start again uh, you know it was the right time at the with the right people too which was i think pretty lucky it wasn't looking around mm. uh, but the opportunity arose and I, and I and i took it and at the time we started uh you know it's kind of a small job in 2006 called stone harbor and it's been pretty successful the firm has been sold recently uh to other people but um it was a super interesting, uh, super interesting experience, right? It was not only managing money, but also participating in helping manage and creating and growing a firm, which mm. uh, I think is very interesting as well. And, and, uh, so you, you joined in 2006, so just before the financial crisis. Did that, yeah, did that the, hit you guys much? 
the, the first two years were uh, were okay, were a growing pain, and then yeah. in two thousand and eight the whole world came to an end. But funny enough, two thousand and eight was for us a, a great year in the sense that, you know, in the emerging markets portfolio. We were uh, sitting there looking at the world. Obviously, we didn't know what was going to happen. Remember, we were thinking about the financial system of the U.S. is going to come down. But emerging markets were not the problem. And emerging market assets were incredibly cheap because everybody was dumping whatever they could in order to gain dollar liquidity. So you were getting stupid valuations, to be honest with you. I mean, uh, yields were incredibly high. Currencies were incredibly cheap. Nobody wanted these assets. And I remember sitting at a table with the CIO day after day and saying, listen, you know, we don't know we're going to make money next year, two years, or, but in three years, this stuff is going to be trading much, much better. Mm. So we started loading risk. Uh, it was incredibly painful because every day you buy and then the next day will be three points lower. Mm. Uh, this is all fixed income, by the way, and FX. Uh, and then emerging markets had a huge turnaround on December 2008 that people don't remember, but... Emerging market indices that month went up more than 10% per month. And obviously we know it now. A lot of that has to do with the, the Chinese and the, the massive intervention in the market that started. The Chinese is huge counter-cyclical policy to stay away from what, what was happening in developed markets. Mm-hmm. So emerging market assets started to fly. And it had 2009, I don't know, we were at 40, 50, 60%, something like that. Wow. And everybody else was flat because everybody dumped that. You know, it was much faster recovery than we thought, and mm. obviously that you know helped us a lot in the in the in the years going forward. Uh, you know, as more money entered into into the asset class, so sometimes fundamental analysis is much better than people give it credit for. I think, mm. uh, but then... you know, much different markets, much different emerging markets than by today, right? But yeah. seriously, the fundamentals of EM. When the financial crisis hit in 2008, 2009, were the strongest they've been in decades, mm. which I think the uh, market didn't realize. It was a dollar liquidity crisis. That's why people were dumping assets, but the yen were, were fine. So the recovery was spectacular as well, honestly. In, in those situations where the fundamentals say these investments are good, but the next day it's down, do you have a lot of questions from your <laughs> LP investors? Do they understand it? Do I, did any of them exit in that time? Or do they kind of listen to your uh, viewpoint on the market and, and ride, ride through that period with you to then see those 40, 50%? You know, you, 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 when you look at your client, you have all the game from the guy that, you know, wants to make money every second. Mm. And the guy that says, you know, here's money, give me a call one year from now, see what happens. Uh, I think a lot depends on how you communicate to your clients. Obviously, at the end of the day, performance is performance. If you make money for them, you make money for them, and that's what they care about. But the way you articulate your process, the way you're thinking, and the way you communicate with them is incredibly important. Uh, It gives you credibility, and it gives you the ability to sustain some of those pain and explain to them, listen, we're sustaining this pain, but, you know, one or two years, if they're willing to stay that long. Uh, you're going to reap the benefits. Obviously, you have to start building the credibility and the, and the track record after that. Uh, but again, it, it it depends on the clients too. And obviously, with time, you have the luxury of maybe not taking certain clients that are not in that type of mindset. Uh, and what I found that is, I think, a disservice to people to, 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 
to managers is, um, I'm not going to sound humble enough, but you have to really sometimes train your clients as well. They do a disservice to themselves if they are continuously pressuring portfolio managers to perform on a day-by-day, by-day-by-day basis. The systems today, the trading platforms and things like that, is risk management is something totally different. But the end client, I think, deserves himself or herself if she starts just calling the client nervous every 10 minutes to see what's going on out there. Then you have to give people, professionals, the... Uh, the patients. In my personal opinion, anything less than three years, if you're not going to commit to somebody for less than three, for more than three years, you just don't give them. Because that's, I think, what you need to, to really uh, see if these people perform well or not. Mm-hmm. If you want something that performs every 30 seconds, every month, every quarter, then it's a different animal, a different people. But I think funds need at least three years of track record to uh, to show that they are there for a long time, and I understand. That makes sense. Again, markets have changed a lot and continues to change significantly a lot. So, and as we were discussing before the call, attention span from people is much lower these days than it used to be. Exactly. So nobody wants to be under the water for more than 30 seconds. You made the move to the hedge fund side and have had a very long career, long tenures with funds as well. Do you think everyone should chase that? Obviously, everybody on the banking side pretty much often wants to make that move. Do you think everyone is is kind of set up to be a good investor, has the mindset for it? Or do you think it does really take certain people to to be successful on the buy side and some people would be better just focusing on a long-term career within the banking side? You know, it's just every person is different, right? So it's up to their personalities. It's just, you know, you're suited to be a lawyer, you're suited to be a trader, you're suited to be a salesperson, you're suited to be something else. So I think it's up to everyone. Obviously, the Euro potential profits... It's huge, mm. uh, but it's, you know, <laughs> it's a little different, but it's probably like Hollywood, right? Everybody wants to be Leonardo DiCaprio, but nobody, you know, very few people can. Yeah. It's the same thing here. I mean, I'm, I'm an average, but you know who the stars are and what they've done and whatever it is. And there are very few people you can count them with your hands. Mm. Yeah. Not only to be successful, but consistently successful for many, many years. You know who they are. The advantage of the finance business is that it's still very inefficient market. So there's mm. room for a lot of people. There's a lot of money in it. So there's a lot of capital behind it. The margins are very high. Mm. So people can afford to make mistakes and still be there. Mm. Um, that's changing a little bit. But give it a try. I mean, why not? <laughs> nice. You think... Uh, if you think you're up to it, give it a try. And I don't think anything prepares you for it. Mm. It's a personality thing and you have to, you know, you yourself can only feel, you know, when you're trading or whatever you're doing, what you feel, how mm. you feel about it. Does it stress you? Does you not? Do you like it? You don't. And do you think there was anything that you did differently or, or separated you that allowed you to have such a long-term career as a portfolio manager and, and senior portfolio manager? That's an interesting question. You know, did I have anything different than, than other people? I, I think you just have to be true to yourself mm. and, and know what your limitations are. And, you know, go as far as you can, but without trying to force to go over that and be honest with yourself. Mm. Uh, you know, I think that's very, very important. You start cheating yourself and forcing things I think you start making a lot of mistakes and trying to hide from them. So that's probably it, I think. It's more a personality thing than, than anything else. I would call it character, if you will. And then obviously you uh, spent a year with, with Millennium as well. How did that compare to the as a, as a business and as a fund, the 13 years you spent with Stonehenge? Yeah, 
the, the Millennium experience was very interesting. I call it a mulligan in my career, to be honest with you. Um, number one, I think it's a phenomenal institution. Mm. Uh, the technology, I was, you know, uh, very positively surprised about the level of technology in the firm, all the systems, the support for the traders, everything is fantastic. The risk management is top notch. You talk to people that have tremendous amount of knowledge about the markets. It's not just three guys punting. You can really see how institution works. Mm -hmm. But that said, their trading style is interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, the way I look at it seems to me, and I may be wrong because it was only one year, so probably uh, uh, it might be different. But the way you drop desks at the banks before the financial crisis kind of thing, mm. you know, almost like daily traders uh, try to make a little bit of the PL every day without much volatility uh, and absolutely zero losses. Whatever loss they have, they will get out yep. incredibly quickly. And that's how they work. So I didn't find anyone that, you know, <laughs> And again, I didn't meet a lot of people, but that was going to make, you know, a billion dollars in a year or something. Everybody mm -hmm. makes some money, but it's very consistent. Not a lot, but it's very consistent and it's not a lot of volatility in that p and I think that's the type of traders they, they kind of like regardless of the, of the asset class. But again, it's a very big firm now, you know, yeah, interesting. with 200 and plus portfolio managers. So there's a lot of there. Ditch to somewhere like a Citadel where... That was in the news recently that the I, I commodities that, traders I, looking to get a billion have paid out <laughs> on their desk. Yeah, I think uh, I know people at Citadel never work there. I think there's, their trading style is a little different than, than, than Millennium. Hmm. I think it's a little bit more bigger positions and maybe longer term trading than, than, than the Millennium model. The millennium model seems to me that the pure platform model, you know, with the different pods that don't touch each other and the risk management and very fast trading and whatnot. No. Uh, Citadel seems to be a little bit different, at least in fixed income. I don't know anything about the equity side. Mm. That's a completely different animal. But at least on the fixed income macro side, they seem to be a little different than millennium. And where do you see the opportunity at the moment in the, the EM and, and fixed income markets, where would, where would you be putting your money? <laughs> you know, it's very interesting markets to me. My, 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 my personal view, unfortunately, is not very bullish in EM. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot has to do with valuations. I think valuations are extremely tight, uh, particularly in fixed income and concern about the level of debt in a lot of these countries. Mm -hmm. uh, the US monetary policy in the last few years have allowed them to finance that debt at you know, very advantageous levels, but we seem to be changing. We seem to be going to a world of higher interest rates, both nominal and real. And that's going to make it much more challenging in the next three, four years. We've already seen the weaker countries tumble, mostly in Africa, uh, some in the, you know, but mostly in Africa, but uh, some in Latin America and whatnot. Some of the weaker have not been able to go through. But some of the larger countries, I think the next three, four years are going to be very, very challenging, given what's happening with rates in the U.S. So I'm not a very big bull in, in EM. There's pockets of, uh, of value there, mm -hmm. but they're not big and liquid. Uh, and they have a lot of credit risks, things like Argentina or Ecuador, for example. Uh, but, you know, I think the bigger countries are going to be very interesting and they're very they're trading at very tight levels now just because of what's been happening in fixed income in the last few years but i think when you combine that with this tremendous slowdown that we've seen in china that is not going to
probably turn around anytime soon. It's, yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. Okay, interesting. And then if you're managing money in this environment, then how do you approach that risk? Do you just find the pockets of value and, and invest in there? Or do you just use more hedging or, or use shorts? Or how do you actually approach yeah, yeah, that, that you, environment? You know, it's, 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 it's long and short, right? From a, on, the, on the credit side, as I mentioned, things like Argentina and Ecuador, I think a lot of value. Mm. I think things like uh, South Africa are a huge short here, mm. given the fundamentals of the country and the vulnerabilities it have. So I think you have to find to, to, to find your pockets. I think there's a lot of opportunities in the shape of some of the credit curves as well. You know, I think we're probably going to see a huge steepening across the board. That's something that, you know, provides some relative value opportunities as well. Um, the good thing about the markets today, too, is that there's plenty of derivatives to trade around. It used to be bonds only, but you can do CDS and things like that mm. that uh, make the trading even more and more efficient. But, I mean, of all the markets out there that are expensive, I think credit is exactly where the, uh, the most vulnerable uh, to a sharp downturn in the U.S. Than there is out there. And uh, effects and rates, effects continues to be dominated by the big dollar picture. Mm. So you really have to have a macro view on what the dollar is going. There's some relative value to be done, but in general, the direction of the market seems to be determined by uh, by by the dollar. And again, given what's going on with rates in the U.S., I don't think the dollar is going to weaken significantly from here. If anything, it's probably going to get stronger, mm. at least until the U.S. elections. So you have to be very careful on that. Also, the interest rate differential between emerging markets and and the U.S. has been shrinking, mm. mostly because emerging market countries have been lowering rates and the Fed has, hasn't been able and it looks like it's not going to be able anytime soon. So, you know, the negative carry of being long dollar versus emerging markets is becoming less and less important. We've seen a little bit of that in Chile that has cut rates a lot. I think the Chilean peso is down 10% for the year already. Uh, so there's opportunities uh, out there. Mm. Um, and... <laughs> You know, besides that tactical trading, I think there's going to be a point when emerging markets assets are going to get super cheap and then you're going to jump in and buy it, but we're not even close to it. Okay, so that's all that's super helpful. And when, uh, from my side, I think this is this has been fantastic. Really appreciate you taking the time running through your career. Um, I think that's super helpful for everyone who's listening. And then also, uh, I think your, your views on the market, super, super valuable. Um, but yeah, is there anything to finish that you think is uh, valuable for the audience or anything else you'd like to, to share? No, just keep going at it. Don't get, <laughs> uh, you know, don't get frustrated. This, mm. you know, markets can frustrate you for a long, long time. It's, uh, but again, as I said, if you stay true to yourself and you're honest, uh, I think you just keep plugging alone and, and, and keep playing. And thank you very much for having me, by the way. Perfect. Likewise. Thanks, Pablo. Cheers.